Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Marks, and this is Young History, a podcast about the history of every country in the world done in reverse order. What that means is that I'm going to start with the least populated countries and work our way up. And right now we're on episode 22, which is on Vanuatu. This is an island nation in Oceania, but specifically in Melanesia, which is the first country in Melanesia we're actually covering. And it's got a very special language called Bislama, which is an English-based Melanesian pidgin, which is like their own kind of dialect and inference on the thing. And English is one of the main languages, as well as French, because of the history that's been in this country. And beyond that, their name Vanuatu means our land forever, which was the name adorned in the 1980s once they got independence, after they were finally able to break away from the English and the very long colonial past they had. And... Another interesting thing is that these people are actually the inventors of bungee jumping. It's kind of taken from them. A lot of credit is given to New Zealand in that area, but the people here, bungee jumping for thousands of years because it was kind of like a rite of passage. People, the the younger men have a trial to go through, and it was very much like bungee jumping, which we'll get into later. And with that, I'm pretty much going to get right into it. So this country is going to be a really interesting one. There's a lot of fun things with it, and it's going to be a good one. So... You know how much I love oceanic countries, and this is my first one in Melanesia. So this one's going to be fun. So thank you so much for being here. I hope you all are well, and let's get right into it. My name's Alex Marks. This is Young History, and this is Vanuatu. Our origins begin in the region of Melanesia, as we said before, and this is a categorically black part of the Pacific. These people have melanin. They're, it's called Melanesia for a reason. These people are very melanated. They have this about them, and it's a big part of their culture, and it makes them very unique. The people that are here, the Melanesians, are the only natural black-skinned people in the world that have naturally growing blonde hair. The people here are believed to be from the people here are believed to be from Africa, specifically the south and eastern parts of Africa, and they are related to the Africans today by genetics and the fact that they have a very similar climate in Vanuatu as compared to the south and eastern parts of the continent of Canada, of Africa. That would attribute to the fact that their genetics would have adapted the same way to the same climate, which means they got darker skin, and the thing with this region, though, is it's so like in the middle of the ocean, probably bleached their hair over time created that kind of sun-kissed blonde that these people have on Melanesia. And after that being said, we're going to get into like the actual way they got there, which is the people are believed to have migrated from Papua New Guinea and Australia. That's where the early earliest Melanesians got to, like the early Africans got to, and started to evolve into this Melanesian culture. And then they moved into Vanuatu from Papua New Guinea and Australia. And I don't like bringing it up because it's just, it's a way to kind of belittle the culture and Cannibalism was part of their very, very early ancient culture thousands of years ago. The native Melanesians recognize it and they acknowledge it and they say it's just, it's an old thing and they don't want to be, they just don't want to be looked at that way because there are a lot of practices that come from those times that are still carried today. Cannibalism is of course not one of them because these people are 3,000 years into the future and they're very different than they were then, just like every other human is. So I don't love bringing it up, but it's just the truth that they were a cannibal culture, but don't look at them and think that that was so long ago it's the same as like comparing modern italians to the roman empire it's just not the same at all 
And as I mentioned before, bungee jumping came from here, and that was because when yam trees are ready to bloom in their season, they grow up to 20 to 30 meters up, and the natives would actually build tall wooden structures up to those 20 to 30 meter trees, and they would tie an ankle, they would tie a vine around the ankle of the boys and men so that they could prove themselves as proud and strong and courageous. And it's like a rite of passage to becoming a man is doing this bungee jump of sorts. So they're the ones who started bungee jumping. It was them before anyone else. This country was first discovered by Europeans when Pedro Hernandez de Cueros actually landed in on the island of currently called Espirito Santo, which he thought was Australia. And he called it this long name, including Espirito de Santo, like La Australia, del Espirito de Santo, which was like the great southern land the great sunland in the south, something like that. And he thought that he really got to this land. And now the name has been changed because we know that this is not Australia. So Espirito Santo is pretty much meaning southern land of the Holy Spirit. So it was still kind of grabbing that religious name. It is a very religious country now. Um, almost all of the people in the country are Roman Catholic, which makes sense because you're discovered by Spaniards. It's kind of how it goes. That was in the 1600s when that discovery happened. The next major interaction would be in 1768 when Louis-Antoine de Bougainville of France would actually begin to map the islands, and this drew in a lot more attention because there was no settling made by the Spanish that discovered them with Mr. Pedro Hernandez. So this next discovery here by the French was very big, and it started to draw in more people. That was 1768. By 1774, the legendary James Cook of Britain began to explore this region and would start to draw and he would start to draw in more people especially British and this would start to draw that settlement and he would actually call the island the New Hebrides which is the name that it would keep from this point in 1774 all the way until its independence in 1980 and as James Cook and Bougainville really started to populate the lands get more people here it got really popular as places like Aramango were discovered and sandalwood traders would start to come into the land around 1825, and it was getting a huge rush that was at its peak in 1830, where Polynesian migrants actually started coming into the land of this Melanesian set of islands because they saw job opportunity and all that, and they were seeing what was happening with the Europeans. And this actually created an issue between the Melanesians and the, Micrones and the Polynesians because the Polynesians were kind of seen as taking the Melanesians' jobs and the natives of Vanuatu didn't like this. Not long after, missionaries and sandalwood salesmen would begin to flood into the islands, and it wouldn't take long for missionaries to really start having wide-ranging missions here and really try to change things and introduce Christianity, all of that. One of the famous people to do that would actually be John Getty, who in 1848 went into Vanuatu and would spend the entire rest of his life as a missionary here trying to teach Christianity. He's the most successful and famous missionary in all of Melanesia, and he is called the father of Presbyterian missions in the South Seas because of how much success he had and the books he wrote and everything he did for Christianity in the region. This is not me praising him all, him at all. Conversion is not quite a great thing. And of course, missionaries kind of see it as, you know, them bringing the God's light to these native people or whatever. You know, take it as you will. Just just know that this was a thing that happened. There was a very famous missionary that came into this land and caused a lot of things. But a much bigger event that would happen in the same kind of time period of the mid-1800s would be around 1860 would be the start of a practice called blackbirding. Now, this was a long-term indentured servant system that was established 
by Fiji and Australia to make up for their labor workers that they were missing. And it would be done by kidnapping. They would go onto islands like Vanuatu, the Samoas, different parts like that, and they would go and grab boys, kids, and women that you know were easy to take, that were lower class, things like that, and they would take them away. And by the mid-1860s, around a third to half of the male population of Vanuatu was actually forced into labor in other parts of the world, in Australia and in Fiji, to make up for labor shortages that they had in their countries. This was especially practiced because Britain had already outlawed slavery by 1834. So for these 1860s, people to kind of maintain that same profit margin and all that off of harvesting and farms and all that, they would need this new practice to help supplement in what was slaves. So this new kidnapping is just a new form of slavery and indentured servitude, things like that. And it lasts for quite a long time. The people that were forced to work in these islands were growing a lot of coffee, cotton, bananas, and coconut plantains plantations. These coconut plantations would actually be the most successful in this region of the world, especially in Vanuatu. And of course they take quite a bit of labor to harvest. So the, and the Polynesians, Melanesians, and the Melanesians here, of course, knew their way around coconut trees and stuff. So they were employed very frequently and forced very frequently to be a part of the harvesting of the coconuts. So because of the fact that both Bougainville and James Cook were in this area a lot, French and British were starting to settle the land a lot. And by the late 1800s, the French outnumbered the British two to one on the New Hebrides. And there was a neutrality established between the British and French. They made a union where both of their naval forces were there to protect any missionaries and merchants that they had in these lands from other European powers and from any attacking islands like the Tongan Empire or anything. And this was called the Anglo-French Naval Commission of 1887, and it lasted for quite a while, lasted for a good couple of decades, but it would change as relations start to change and they see a new idea for what they want with Vanuatu or the New Hebrides at the time. Franceville, which was... Old Espirito, which is modern Espirito de Santo, declared itself independent, and it was actually the first country to have universal suffrage without race or sex being excluding factors. It didn't take long, it would only take a few years after this declaration for the New Hebrides to be united once again under the British and French because they felt they had a different culture and wanted their government to be governed differently, and this was more led by merchants and people that started making their home here as opposed to actual Melanesians that were native to the land. So these missionaries and merchants would start to create their own culture here, and they would really want to kind of buckle down and make their own thing in Franceville as opposed to what was the big conglomeration of the New Hebrides. It didn't take long for these to be reunited into the New Hebrides because both Britain and France agreed to jointly administer the islands in 1906, and this meant a lot of change would come specifically to laws and restrictions on the land. And when someone committed a crime, they would actually get a choice. They would either be able to go to French prison, prison, which was known for having less space but better food and would be a little more lax on the way you were treated there. But because of those very tight living restrictions, they weren't great to be imprisoned in. Not that being imprisoned anywhere is great at all, but this was the downside of this one specifically. And then in the British prisons, there was much more restriction. You were watched much more closely, but there was way more humane living and... There was much more space, and you were had cellmates and stuff to keep conversation going. It was much 
better to say when it came to that side of it, but you're kind of served slob. So do you want better food or do you want better, better food and lax laws or do you want it to be tighter and live a little easier? Very interesting. But the big part is that in 1906, they are conjointly administered by the French and the British. And the French side actually started to get a lot of Vietnamese workers because a lot of migration came because of French colonization in what was Vietnam or what is Vietnam today in that whole area. There's a lot of colonization of that part of South Asia. So a lot of Vietnamese ended up migrating to Vanuatu and they became a big part of the workforce. The population was really greatly reduced from 1800 to 1935, and that's because of the European diseases from the missionaries, the merchants, and the sailors that came onto the land, as well as the soldiers. They all brought old world diseases, which were really bad for the Melanesian natives, and it kills over 90% of the people that were there. It is believed that 90 million... It is believed that one million people actually lived between all these islands. That's what's told in the stories. And by 1935, it was only down to 50,000 people. So that drop is huge. And even if there's exaggerations on both ends that there wasn't actually a million people and it was a few hundred thousand less, being reduced down to under 100,000 and nearing 50,000 is insane because that's a huge, huge hit to the population and a huge amount of change that comes during World War II, which began in 1939, these islands were used as a base for the Allied powers very, very commonly. They were so close to New Zealand and Australia, which were British colonies, that they were used all the time for British bases, and the Americans used them a lot during the Pacific Theater of War and the battles against Japan and the island hopping campaign. And it was so prominent, the effects there, that if you go there now, you could actually buy American Coca-Cola from the 1940s because the battleships carried them and sold them here when the Americans were docking on these islands. And the big thing to come from this was there wasn't a huge amount of fighting on any parts of Vanuatu, but this saw a huge rise in nationalism because the people of Vanuatu, the true Melanesians, the natives, began to see what European influence, what effect the Melanesians began to see what effect the European influence had on their lifestyle and their way of life. So this saw a nationalist rise, and specifically it saw the rise of the John Frum movement. And John Frum was a religion that was established that had the Melanesians on the island believing they would inherit industrial goods and power from magic and from prayer and from these practices and sacrifices and things like that. And they ended up kind of shifting away from this kind of magical, ethnic, religious thing into a more political space because they become really very big advocates for the independence from Europe. And today, John Frum is a religion and a political party that is a part of voting and all that. And one of the big ones outside of John Frum that became very big towards independence was Vanua Aku, which was established in the 1970s and began to really fight for it and campaign it to people on the island to have a referendum because at this point, the 1960s and on, the British are starting to quote-unquote decolonize, as always I say quote-unquote because they still have so many people in the Commonwealth and places they control and things like that. But they start to decolonize overall and referendums are starting to come out. So if these people in the Vanua Aku movement and political party are able to convince the Vanuatu people to break away from Britain, it would be signed and it would happen. 
one of the big things that happens here is actually the Coconut War, which is a 12-week-long resistance against the French and British, where a man named Jamie Stevens led the blockade, where a man named Jimmy Stevens actually spearheaded this resistance, and he was a leader who would, did very big things to make this like resistance powerful. One of the things he did was he destroyed bridges and made a blockade of the airport so people couldn't get into the islands, and on the island of Espirito de Espirito Santo, he made a lot of things like this happen. He blocked roads and rallied up a lot of forces, and he declared an independence on Espirito Santo as Vimarana, which is a country that lasted for just these, just the 12 weeks of this resistance. And the French didn't want to use their army on these people, and they forbade the British from doing so because Jimmy Stevens' army was not like well armed. It didn't have guns. It didn't have all that. It was they were literally using bows and arrows, sticks and spears, things like that to have an uprising and because of this the French didn't want to look like they were genociding or just wiping out the people that were resisting them because of how big the gap was in technology and preparedness for war so the French forbade the British from using their forces and they didn't want to use their own forces either so they actually asked the Papua New Guinean force to come and handle the issue and they do come so the thing though with this was that the Guineans of Papua New Guinea are Melanesian they're a part of the Melanesian kind of sphere of Oceania. So when they arrived, a lot of the people that were standing up to the British and European British and French European forces were cool with them showing up because they looked just like them. They're Melanesian. They're very black island people of Oceania. And they weren't disliked that much, but throughout this resistance there were only very few casualties. Just a few fights broke out here and there. People would you know, very aggressive people on Jimmy Stevens' side would attack a lone or a small band of Papua New Guinean soldiers and they would kill them with sticks and stones, things like that. And then vice versa, things would get aggressive between the New Guinean forces and some Jimmy Stevens forces and guns would be shot and people would die. But there was a very big dramatic end to the war, which came in the later part of nineteen eighty, at like the later part of this twelve week long resistance, so three months. Which was when at this big Papua New Guinean blockade there was a lot of guns and them ready to fight and this car blasts through the blockade and drifts and skirts right in front of these people and they shoot it up like the forces shoot as much as they can they kill everyone inside and one of the people inside this car was actually the son of jimmy stevens who was being held captive and this like anti-war force that kidnapped him was trying to use it as leverage against jimmy stevens and as soon as News breaks that Stevens' son was killed. Jimmy Stevens surrenders right away, and he has this with a broken heart. He's very heavy-hearted and giving it up. And as he's going through his trial, a lot of things come out. One of the big ones being that the French government was actually funding his cause to some degree to kind of inspire the British to kind of pull away from this land because they didn't, you know, new governments come in, and even though there was an agreement made 100 years earlier about the way the French and British would handle this land, but new people came into power and they had much more desire for French control. As we know, French nationalism is a very big thing, especially after, just throughout their history. But, you know, after World War II and the Cold War, French nationalism becomes a very big thing again under Charles de Gaulle and people like that. This was done for that reason to kind of get more control of the island from the British, even though the French and British had a pretty good agreement. These French in power wanted more power than they already had. So just more corrupt things like that. It's ridiculous, and people in Vanuatu are used as pawns for this game, and it's ridiculous. 
it would be the same year in 1980 that the movement for independence really gets at its highest and goes into the stage where they're gaining independence. Now, I, I earlier mentioned the Vanua Aku Party, and this was actually found. This was actually founded by a man named Donald Kalpokas, and he was a man who promoted socialist policy and political independence from the very start of his movement. And he helped his islands secede from the government for a time to put pressure on the rest of the islands to vote for independence. And many negotiations were had with him spearheading them through the 70s between policemen, between independence parties, presiding governments, and different European powers about gaining independence. And because of all this push and the coconut war that happened with Jimmy Stevens, independence ends up coming in the late 1980. The year independence ends up coming late in the year of 1980 after the events and after the events with Jimmy Stevens as well as all this push that already happened here independence ends up coming in the late part of the year 1980 and a defense pact is actually signed out of this with Papua New Guinea to replace the French and British military so the back then and today the Papua New Guinean military is actually what protects Vanuatu on an international scale they have a good commitment there there's a lot of talks between the two a lot of trade and the country does pretty well. There was a Category 5 tropical cyclone that hit, as well as a huge Category 7 earthquake. Both of these really crushed the archipelago of Vanuatu, and it brought homelessness and destruction to a lot of the country, and some people still haven't recovered from this because it just destroyed their generational wealth, it destroyed everything their families had built, all that. And with that... There's a lot of struggles, but the country has recovered very well. The capital that was hit very hard, Port Vila, has done very well to get back to the place it was before this. And since then, we're pretty much at the modern day. And with the modern day, there's a few interesting things going on. In the modern day, there are actually some pretty interesting things going on with the country. One of them being is that you can actually get citizenship by investment. This happens in a lot of the Caribbean countries and in a couple of the oceanic ones, Vanuatu being one of them. And so if you're a local or you're part of a certain family, you're able to buy land pretty easily. You could own land and build a home and all that on Vanuatu. It's a pretty easy process. But for foreigners, it is definitely much different. Foreigner citizenship can be bought and is valid for land land use as long as a coconut tree is productive, which is around 75 years. So you get the right to use land for 75 years, and that's it. It has to be reapproved and all that. And after you're pre-approved for citizenship, it can actually be bought for, you know, a very low one hundred eighty to $300,000 to get citizenship in this country. Now, of course, this would give you access to their more lax tax laws, as we've seen with, like, every country we've done so far. The island nations have more lax taxes, so rich people go there because what's giving 180000 away if you can have your millions that are coming in every year be taxed less? makes sense but for you know anyone who's even very wealthy part of the middle class or upper class that isn't stinking rich it's definitely not worth it just travel there just go enjoy the culture and one of the things you could do while you're there is actually see this very famous cultural display they do is where the natives of the island actually put on a whole show for the locals to highlight their culture they act very threatening as you sail up to them they act like you'd imagine a tribe disconnected from the world would they have spears and they threaten and you have to offer them fish that you caught as part of a peace thing and they actually 
grab the tourists and they take them up to their what is displayed as a setup of their tribal camp and you meet the chief and there's a whole display where the women dance and you meet to meet the children it's very very unique it's something that hit me i just i love that part of you know history and culture is seeing the way people have built and evolved and all of that and this this has become more and more famous more and more travel youtubers and vloggers are starting to cover it and with that they have gotten the message from the Vanuatu people that they want this to be done. They want their culture to be spread. They want their history to be told. They want all that to really happen because they feel it's definitely starting to fade away as times are changing in Vanuatu and there's a lot of connection between them and China, things like that. So they don't want their culture and history to be erased because of the changing times and the fact that their oral tradition is becoming farther and farther away, things like that. And another major thing that is going on in the country right now is actually a big addiction. This addiction is to a plant called betel nut, and it's an addictive plant chemical mixture that is used by growing, used by a lot of the population, around half of the country uses it to some degree, and it is seen as a supplement that helps with production and happiness by the locals, but it has a lot of hard side effects, such as oral cancer, holes in the mouth, and things like that. You take this nut, and you chew it in your mouth, and then you take a mustard stick, like a stick of grown mustard, and you swirl that around in it's like crushed seashells that kind of have this chemical effect to them. And when you touch the betel nut with it, it makes it very red as you chew it and gives you this lightheaded feeling. And people chew it and they spit it and it's very much like, it looks, it looks like they're almost being blood. It gets so red, but it gets them high and people do it every day. It's hugely, hugely widespread and very addictive. So even though it may be a big part of the culture and they always the people who use it always say, oh, it keeps me happy, all that, it's just, it's a little scary to hear that because there are a lot of bad side effects like holes in the mouth, cancer, things like that. It's very bad. And that pretty much brings us to the present where despite the spread of this addiction to the betel nut, the country still has a medium human development and they're also considered the fourth happiest country in the world by the Happiness Index, which comes out every summer. They rank number four, well, only behind a few major countries like Mexico and Costa Rica and ones that are famous for being happy in Finland, places like that. And despite it being one of the least visited countries on Earth, only around under 100,000 people come every year. I think it's somewhere between 75 and 85,000 people come every year. And another big change that's coming to the country is that, and another thing with the present part of the country is that a lot of junk food and Western food is being very limited. Since they've been so based on imports, the government is trying to change this. It is a big thing that's famous with Oceania is that the people are very heavy and it's a big problem for them. The obesity is widespread across the whole oceanic region. And that's because of so many imported foods. It's very hard to grow food, especially since the time of colonization where a lot of space was used for tobacco and sugar and things that aren't nutritious. It's not like it's vegetables or farmland. It's just money-making crops, cash crops, if you will. So today, Western and junk food is being limited in the country because organic farmers are being subsidized to grow a lot of food. And when you go here, you should expect to get a lot of organically grown crops and onions and things like that because it's made by the organic farmers and supported by the government. And with that, we actually get to the end here and we get to where we are today, which is a pretty good place for Vanuatu. They do get financial aid and things like that, but they're doing good. They're doing all right. And... That's the present. So I'm going to leave it how I always like to leave it, which is with a mindset. And with this one, it's going to be to adapt. Now, what I mean by adapt is kind of be open. It's more openness than adapt. 
is be open to new things and accept that times do change and the way you used to be or the things you used to do, the things that you you, you used to really obsess over, you might not still do that. It might not still suit you as well as it used to. And that's okay. The people of Vanuatu have adjusted to many different rulers and leaders and rules and slavery and indentured servitude, the blackbirding. They've dealt with a lot of different situations and scenarios, but they're still here. And because of this openness they have, they've been able to adapt to keeping their culture alive. They've done this, put on the, they put on this show that is a cultural practice to keep their culture alive, to tell the history of their country, to expose the greater part of the world by greater just being bigger to the thing that is Vanuatu, to the history, to the culture, to who they are. And I'm not saying you need to be open to sharing your culture with people if you're not comfortable with that, but be open to the new opportunities that come. Be open to the new way you can handle a situation. Be open to what can come and go for you and what you need to let go of because being open to new things means that you're open to letting go of old things. And if you're able to do that, that's a great path towards growth because some things that used to serve you are not going to still serve you now. And being able to understand where that line is is a very great path towards growth. So I very much think that you should be open to you know, new opportunities and things as long as they feel like they are fit on your path and that they matter for your path. Because as I said last episode, there's going to be a lot of distractions and a lot of people that try and use you and your time and use you as a means to get them further. Watch out for that. Be open with your eyes as well as you are open with your heart. Be open with your eyes to see what things are fishy and weird. And if things sound too good to be true, they probably are. If things sound fishy, they probably are. Just if your gut's telling you no, don't do it. But if you get excited by this opportunity and the only thing holding you back is, oh, I don't know if I have the time or, oh, I don't know if it's right for me. Like, I just, I don't know if I want to try it. Try it. What's the worst that happens? If it isn't for you, it isn't for you. But it could be something great. So things that you feel confident in, try them out. So that's how I'm going to leave it. Remember, be open, open to the world, open to new opportunities. And that is that. So I'm going to wrap it up here and just say this was a fun one. I always love getting to do my oceanic countries, especially in Melanesia now. It's a, it's just a region of the world I knew nothing about up until last year. I mean, I've traveled to Hawaii, but I've never gotten the chance to go to Melanesia. I haven't been to Papua New Guinea or Vanuatu, Fiji, any of those. So being able to see this is very unique and it's very fun. So I'm glad you guys get to be here as we go through this history. I get to pull some mindsets and lessons from it too. So I'm going to wrap it up here and say thank you so much for listening. And this was Young History. My name is Alex Marks. And thank you so much for being here. Y'all have a good one.